Uh, Lord, all that has life, all that exists, all that is, is dependent on you uh, for our existence. We ask that your spirit is at work in our midst today so that we hear from you the things you mean for us too. And also, Lord, just so that you'd help raise our hearts, raise our eyes, raise our vision to see you more clearly, to know you more fully as you truly are glorious in every respect. And, and out of that, help us to worship you, Lord, as we should. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, guys, I was just talking before service. I'm usually in a series on Sunday morning, and series help keep you honest because you got to teach from Scripture. You know, whatever is in that text, it keeps us honest, keeps us off hobby horses. I'm on a, a one-off message this morning in between series. Last time I taught, uh, we finished a 19-week, 19-message series through Deuteronomy. We'll start in 2 Peter Next week, and on my teaching Sundays, that'll take us right up to about Christmas. So if you have interest in can, Second Peter is short, three chapters long. You could read that before next Sunday. That would be good preparation. This morning, on a different topic entirely, um, I wanted to start by asking what may be a personal question. I hope it's not offensive. But I'm wondering if any of us ran out of toilet paper last summer. <laughs> don't, don't raise your hand. We don't want to know specifics. Did anyone run out of toilet paper last summer? Now, if you go back to last summer, how we connect these dots, I have no idea. You know, COVID comes along, there's a pandemic, and everything go, that goes along with it, and people are rushing to the store to buy toilet paper. It makes the news. And you're like, what, what's going on in their head? How, how does getting sick end at toilet paper? The thing I really need to do is run out and buy toilet paper. It's like I don't get it. But you know what happened. Whatever was going on initially, that to toilet paper is the thing, with the irrationally minded. Well, then the rationally minded people are thinking the toilet paper is going to be gone. So the rational joined the irrational to run out and buy toilet paper. And, you know, if you went late, sorry. If you went to Sam's, I still remember, there's no toilet paper to be had. You know, I'm looking at the napkins and the paper towels and everything else. <laughs> so how do they connect it? I don't know. But if you were late, you were too late for toilet paper. Now, if you go to the southern borders of the U.S., if you go down along the coast or the, the eastern seaboard as well during hurricane season is what I'm thinking of. When the National Weather Service tells us that the storm and whatever its name is is on the way, if you go at that point to the big box stores or the builder stores and you want to get a generator, you want to get bottled water, you want to buy plywood, nails, and screws, you're probably too late because they're already gone because everybody's thinking the same thing. The storm's coming it's imminent, it's time to get ready for the storm. And if that's what you waited for, you were probably too late because it's all, it's all bought up, it's all sold out. I've said this repeatedly, when is the best time to prepare for emergencies or trouble? It's not when they arrive, is it? It's before trouble arrives, that's the time to prepare for trouble. And it's what we don't do very often. I have 16 years in emergency services, so this was something that we would see routinely. I'd tell the girls this all the time when they were growing up. There are no emergencies. There are only inconveniences we've already made provision for. That's an overstatement. I get it. But the thought is, I'm prepared for the trouble that's likely to come down the road. If you look at Proverbs 22, verse 3, and if you do have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there. We'll have a few verses out of Proverbs this morning. Proverbs 22, 3 is, is where we're going to start, at least, on this morning's message. We'll go from there. But the wisdom literature carries this concept of seeing trouble, expecting trouble, seeing it coming, making provision for it, and so avoiding unnecessary kinds of trouble or emergencies. Proverbs 27.12 is almost verbatim the same thing. 
And if you're in the book of wisdom and there's about three different phrases in Proverbs that are repeated two and or three times, that's significant. They could have been recorded once, that would have been enough. But in Scripture, when something's repeated two and three times, it's for emphasis, it's making a point. Proverbs 22.3 says this, The prudent, so the wise person, the godly person who thinks the way God wants us to, the prudent sees danger and hides himself. You know, in Proverbs, life is, is a walk down a straight path. Wow. Ignore the man behind the curtain. <clears throat> Proverbs, life is a straight path. And so I err if I go off to the right or to the left. But it's also this thought, it's forward progress. And so the thought here is, I'm walking down the, the path of life, and I see trouble, and I get off the path. I get out of the way. I avoid that trouble that's coming my way. I do that if I'm prudent. It says, but the simple... And you know, in Scripture, especially in Proverbs, the simple is the naive, it's the morally deficient person. It's the person who should know better but doesn't. So it says the naive or the simple go on and suffer for it. That the, the simple and the wise will both face troubles on their journey of life the wise will suffer less often, less frequently, less severely because they made wise provision for what was coming. The foolish didn't. God's wisdom exhorts us to be aware of impending and potential dangers and troubles and make some provision to avoid them whenever possible. And on this scale, it's not if trouble comes. It's never if trouble comes in this life. It's when and it's of what sort. But it's not if trouble comes. Trouble is always coming on our horizon. In fact, Job 5, verse 7 says, Job, another piece of wisdom literature, says, man is made for trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. Do sparks fly up from a fire? Job says, well, then man is made for trouble. Expect trouble in this life. If you think about insurance alone as a provision for trouble, so if I'm a homeowner, I have homeowner's insurance. I'm I'm insuring something I couldn't readily afford to rebuild. Or if I'm renting, I hope, if you're renting, I hope you have renter's insurance because home, the, the homeowner, doesn't, his insurance doesn't cover your stuff. Do you have renter's insurance, automobile insurance? We buy insurance sometimes because it's mandated and sometimes just because it's prudent. We buy insurance hoping we never have to use it. But some of us, We'll use insurance sometimes over some issues. And so what we're doing is what Proverbs talks about. We know some, some forms of trouble are going to come. And insurance is one of the ways that we make wise preparation before that unknown trouble arrives and hits us. I am not selling insurance this morning. But I have a friend you can talk to. Just kidding, I'm not. Uh, but what I want to do this morning is talk about preparation for three forms of trouble that Scripture speaks to, and one is just provision for avoiding trouble related to living life day by day. The other is for preparing for the kind of trouble that comes because you're a follower of Christ and you see persecution, it's suffering, and, and suffering comes in all forms for, for everyone but this morning I'm specifically referring to suffering by way of persecution as Christ. And the last is the trouble that may attend us in dying. And I want to say this before I start. So we'll look at some scripture. What the scripture says I think is pretty plain. When we go to sort of extrapolating and looking at the culture we're in and the, the scenario we occupy today, I'm, I'm exercising a lot of my own judgment. So you may disagree with some of the things I say. That's fine. I'm, I'm not speaking for the elders this morning. I'm being careful to tell you. I'm sharing some of my opinions, some of my judgments about what I think is coming, things that are prudent for us to be prepared for. The first, I hope you have a study sheet, is, is preparation for troubles just in living, living life day by day. Proverbs 6, 6 through 8. Again, if you have your Bibles, that's the place to go. Uh, listen to this. Uh, go to the ant, and I love this old word, O oh sluggard. You lazy person, 
Go to the ant, you lazy person, and consider, consider her ways and be wise. We can be wise if we just take some clues from the ant. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. So here, Solomon is looking at the lowly ant, and he says, we can take a cue from the lowly ant. You know, if you watch ants, they're always going. They're always looking for food. And the ants are doing what looks to us like prudence. Winter's coming. The, the, the time to harvest will be over, and things are going to get lean. So we know that. We know that we ants, we know this. So we're laying up food while food is available. And, of course, for the ants, this is a seasonal thing. It's a cycle. It's predictable. So winter, when I can't get new food, is coming, and I need to make provision for that now. The implication is this. Even the ant has enough foresight to prepare for future troubles. If the ant has enough wisdom to do that, shouldn't we? If the lowly ant, I don't know what an ant brain looks like, but if the lowly ant has enough sense to prepare for future troubles, times without food, shouldn't we? That's the implication. Winter, if you think of animals, you know, the cycles of the season and all, that's predictable. Some things are less predictable, even if they're seasonally uh, tied. For instance, if another tornado came through town and wrecked Topeka. So I'm just going to give you some examples of things that could affect your ability and mind to simply live life normally. In my lifetime, I believe it's three tornadoes have come through and damaged part of Topeka. Uh, the big one when I was nine years old, but we've had at least two since then come through and damage portions of Topeka. If a tornado comes through, and you know it's tornado season, by the way. If to a tornado came through, or if another ice storm took out power coming up in the winter months, if another ice storm came and took out power from your house for days or weeks, and, and we don't make this up, Kathy and I have lived through this right here in Topeka, if stores were closed for a few days or longer, have we, like the ant, made any provision whatsoever? If life as we know it, the normal thing we expect to be able to do, if it's temporarily upended, do we have any way to take care of ourselves? Many of us don't. Many of us don't. Do we have any non-perishable foodstuffs on hand? So if you can't get to the grocery store, do you have enough food to last you through a few days or a week or whatever? And the way we, we address this would probably be a little different for all of us. But do we have anything that doesn't perish that we can leave on a shelf? And if this time happens, if the emergency comes up, we don't know when, but it's probably going to happen. You live in the Midwest. Something's going to come up. And your ability to simply negotiate life the way we normally do, it'll be upended. Is there any provision whatsoever? Any non-perishable foodstuffs? Do you have extra clean water? Do we have a stack of bottled water? Or do we know we can use the water in our water heater if we need it? Are we aware? Water's a big deal in emergencies. If you have a medical condition that requires medications and the pharmacy's closed, I'm thinking particularly of people with heart, respiratory, uh, diabetics, do you have enough meds to get you through an emergency? Pharmacy's not open. Uh, for some of us, we might say, um, I've got a refrigerator and I've got one or two freezers. If you lose power, how much money is in those freezers? Just food. If you have meats and vegetables and all this stuff stored up in your freezer and you lose power, how much money are you losing? How much food are you losing? Do you have a generator if you need to? All of us don't need a generator, but for some of us that would make sense. That would be prudent to have a generator to keep those going. Or furnaces. Uh, Kathy and I spent about a week with my parents during an ice storm. They had power. We didn't. We were without power for more than 10 days in central Topeka. We stayed, I kid you not, in our house as long as we could. We were in sleeping bags in our house. We didn't want to go to mom and dad's house, <laughs> but we did, and they graciously let us come in. And we stayed there because there was no power. We've got little kids. We cannot manage this in our home. If we lost our job or normal means of financial support, have we put money away for a rainy day? You know, many of us in the States, we live from paycheck to paycheck. Well, what happens if you miss a paycheck? What happens if you can't get to work? 
What happens if the normal means of provision doesn't come through? Do we have anything save for a rainy day? If the banks were closed, if computer systems or credit card systems go down, do we have cash available at home? Not in the bank, if you can't access the bank. Do you have any cash available so that you could, if possible, go out and buy what you needed? If the dollar, stretching further out, lost notable value, do we have any commodity reserves that are failure-proof? If you were a farmer, this would be things like cows and grain, perhaps. But, you know, for most of us living in the city, this would be things like, do you have any gold? Do you have any silver? And it goes without saying, do you have any toilet paper you could trade for your food? In the realms of life having to do with feeding ourselves, having shelter, having some kind of reserves materially and financially, are we exhibiting as much wisdom as an ant? Because that's the comparison. Do we have as much wisdom as believers who are tied to the living God who's the source of all wisdom? Do we show as much sense as the ant? That's a fair question. If you're still in Proverbs, turn to Proverbs 31, verse 25. Proverbs 31 is well known because most of that chapter is the description of this crazy, wise woman who does all this stuff throughout life. And I think it's the accumulation of things this woman has done throughout her lifetime, not all at, a, at one shot. But she's, she's, there's food, there's clothing, she's got a business, she's bought a field. I mean, this gal's doing it all. And at the end of all that provision for life, verse 25 says this, Strength and dignity are her clothing. She laughs at the time to come. She laughs at the time to come. Now, she laughs in this sense. Her heart is light. And she's confident because she's looked down the road. She's seen potential trouble times of lack, and she's made all the provisions that make sense, that wisdom demanded, she's made them. So she has a level of confidence looking down the road of life to say, you know, if there's a way to prepare for the troubles that are coming, I've made it. I'm not worried about those things. I'm not fearful about those things coming up because I've already made provision. That's a good encouragement for any of us. Before we move on, I want to qualify a couple things I'm saying here. The call to be aware of future troubles is not a call to fearfulness, but to fearlessness, to confidence like the woman in Proverbs 31 has because we've done due diligence in a way that honors God and reflects the wisdom of his word. It's not a call to fear at all. And also this, you could face a situation in life in which you say, you know, I've made the, the kind of provisions for trouble that's come up that I can predict that's foreseeable in any way. I've done it. And trouble comes along and I find that my resources were inadequate. Or a trouble that I didn't anticipate comes up and I don't have any provision for it. And guys, this is always true. You know, in the Lord's prayer, the Lord's model prayer, we pray, give us today our daily bread. Give us today what we need. It's wise to make provision for the future, but ultimately we're just trusting God for this day and this moment. And the Matthew 6.33 always applies, Lord, we want to put you and your things first, and we trust you for everything else. So some things may come up in life in which we've been prudent, we've been wise, we've made the provisions that make sense, and something comes along bigger than our provision or different than our provision, we don't fear, we don't fall into anxiety, we don't act like the end of the world has approached. We just say, Lord, what does your provision look like? What do you want me to know? What do you want me to do? So definitely not a call to anxiety or fearfulness at all, but a call to hard-headed wisdom on one hand and continued dependence on Christ on the other. There's another form of suffering, persecution, emergency, trouble that's coming. I believe it's here and more of it's going to come, and I do mean by way of persecution. This is from 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 13. A Peter who knew something about trouble by way of persecution wrote, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial, and this isn't suffering of any sort, this is persecution, 
Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He says you're a Christian, you're a follower of Christ in a world that rejects him. Expect trouble by way of persecution. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter says you're Christ's followers. You know what you should expect in this life? Trouble. Trouble by way of persecution. We've said this in the, in the first Peter series just last year. Christians aren't promised less trouble in life. They're promised more trouble in this life, not less. Everybody gets trouble. It's a given. Christians get additional trouble. You remember Paul said in 2 Timothy 2 or 3, I'm going to forget the passage now, uh, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution because you live in a world that rejects Christ. It's not a surprise when it happens. It's not if, it's when. It's of what sort that persecution, that trouble looks like. Here's an example. Three Canadian pastors were jailed this year for violating COVID restrictions imposed by the Canadian government on church meetings. Uh, uh, quite a bit like in the States. There were, there were numerous and onerous restrictions on churches. The pastors that were arrested all believed they were responsible to God to continue to meet as a local church and that ultimately God, not the Canadian government, was their authority, a, a view that I agree with. One of those three, Pastor Arthur Paulowski, and you may have seen him, he's on YouTube, he uh, boldly confronted the legal authorities that were walking into the Resurrection Sunday service and he told them to get out. And they did. And it was all videotaped and it's online. He ordered the police out of the church building during the meeting. He was offended that they were there on Resurrection Sunday, coming in in their uniforms in a threatening posture. So they left the building, but they later pulled him over. They drug him out of his car down the road and put him in solitary confinement for about a day and a half. Later, he was interviewed on Fox News. He said he'd escaped tyranny and persecution in Poland in 1990 to embrace freedom in Canada. He now believes Canada is, and I quote, some type of a hybrid between fascism and communism, which, of course, he'd grown up under. He said, quote, when I grew up beyond the Iron Curtain, that's what we were receiving on a daily basis, lies, manipulation, and misinformation. And, and this is the clincher. He said, my message to you is watch what's happening here because it's coming your way. Watch what's happening here. He says, this isn't the end of persecution for Christians and for those who follow Christ who say we're commanded to meet. It's coming your way. And I believe he's absolutely right. There is a human tendency to look down the road and see trouble approaching and tell yourself and convince yourself that trouble's not really approaching. In, in other words, um, history tells me it won't happen here. That's what the Jews in Germany said. It won't happen here. Or it won't get any worse than it is right now. So there's this natural sense that we want status quo. If life's okay, I want life to stay status quo, stay okay as it is. But if we see that trouble, we don't recognize it, we refuse to make some accommodation for it, the Proverbs 22.3 says we're setting ourselves up for unnecessary trouble, unnecessary trouble or unnecessary levels of trouble. In the West, we usually speak about persecution for faith as something that happens elsewhere. We as a church pray for persecuted Christians every Sunday. And they're across the Atlantic Ocean, aren't they? They're, they're in Africa, they're in Indonesia, they're in China, Korea, you name it. The kind of persecution that I believe has already started here is not of that same kind, but it has already started for sure. Uh, the Church of Jesus Christ is targeted and under assault in the United States by government, by courts, and by big tech. And let me just give you some examples. I think this is current. This is not in the future. This is current. We talked about this, by the way, last year. Churches were targeted in ways no one else was under COVID restrictions on meetings. So the key example in my mind that's easy to make is, do you remember in Nevada, the casinos were open? because they are absolutely essential in Nevada or any place else, I suppose. 
the casinos are essential. So a church couldn't meet inside. So a bright pastor, I commend him. I thought this was great. He said, you know what? We can't meet because we're Christians meeting in a church. But you know what? The pagans, they can meet in the casinos. You know what we'll do? We'll go meet in the casino. And you know what the law said? No, you won't. Guys, that's not about the casino. That's saying you Christians aren't going to meet. Other people will. Other people can. You may not. Churches were targeted all over this country. Now, I will tell you, it was obviously unequal treatment under the law. And many churches filed lawsuits. And in all the suits that I'm aware of, the churches have won against these edicts or they're still in process. But make no mistake, churches were singled out in ways no one else was. That wasn't, that wasn't accidental. You've probably heard uh, Seattle florist, she's a Christian, Baronel Stutzman. She's been in the news literally for years. I don't know how long ago this suit was filed. Three years, four years, it's been quite a while. Her case, she's a florist. And people she knew and, and had a good relationship with said, hey, we're getting married. They same-sex union. We want you to do our flowers. And she said, you know what, thanks, but no thanks. I'm a Christian. I don't really think that's what God wants me to do. And, and they sued. And they said, this is illegal discrimination against us. And they won. And so her case went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court agreed with the state of Washington and said, Baronell and anyone like you. And these kinds of suits, these have gone on and they're still going on all over the country today. The state of Washington said, if you're open for business as a florist, you will make flowers for anybody that comes in for any reason, or it's discrimination, and we'll take you to court, and you'll lose. Last week, and guys, what I'm giving you, this is the tip of the iceberg. If you go online and you start searching for these, this is going on all over the country. I'm giving you not even the tip of the iceberg. This is current, so that was just, the Supreme Court turned her down just two weeks ago. The, the legal team that's representing her is actually hoping to bring it up again to the Supreme Court, but under another heading. I didn't quite understand how they think they're going to get that done. This is last week in Colorado. Last week, a federal appeals court upheld a Colorado law requiring a Christian website designer to create sites for same-sex weddings in spite of religious objections. The court wrote, quote, protecting both the dignity interests of members of marginalized groups and their material interests in accessing the commercial marketplace, end quote, justified overriding Lori Smith's free speech and religious liberty. They said, we understand you have a legal claim to practice your religion, but it's subjected under the right of these people to have flowers or to make you create their website. The court cited the LGBT community as the marginalized group, but guys in our culture today, they are not the marginalized group. Christians are the marginalized group in today's courts, under today's governance, and under big tech. The First Amendment guaranteeing in this country the right of freedom of religion has become like our southern border which is to say of limited value and open to gross abuse. So the First Amendment is not protecting Christians in the marketplace or the public square today, certainly not effectively. Christians are being pushed out of the public square, off social media platforms, and relegated to a Christian ghetto. I would point out historically, too, we often look at China today and say Christianity is illegal. Christianity is not illegal in China. Or you look at the Soviet Union and you say, well, Christians were imprisoned in the Soviet Union. Christianity wasn't legal. No, Christianity was legal in the Soviet Union too. It's always been legal under communism. This was the caveat. You were okay as a Christian if you met where the communists, the atheists told you to meet, when they told you you could meet, and you said what they said you could say. And if you didn't go along with that, if you brought your faith out of that church building into the public square, you would be arrested and you would not practice the faith. But make no mistake, to say that the faith is legal is meaningless, ultimately. If they can get you 10 other ways, it's meaningless to say it's, it's okay to practice your Christianity under communism. It's not. 
Live Not by Lies is a book by Rod Dreher. It was published last year. It is, in my estimation, one of the most important and timely books of our day because it's a wake-up call to Christians in the West. He makes two major points. His first point is this. Christians in the West are, are, are already under what he calls a soft version of tyranny or totalitarianism. There's a soft tyranny already at work. And he says, worse is coming. His second point is this. It's here, it's coming, therefore we should, guess what? Make preparations for that. We should see what's coming down the road and we should make preparations for it. So the first part of his book is making the argument, making the case, and he's showing simply, guys, he's just going through the news just like you can, just like I do, and showing you where Christians, churches, free speech is being shut down, freedom to practice the faith in the public square is being shut down. And sometimes, and you know this is the case now, it's not just by government, it's not just by court, it's big tech, it's big business. They have become... They have coalesced, if you will, with government, and the government doesn't need to require some things because big tech is doing a number of these things for them, and you'll read about that in the book. The second half of the book is the encouraging part, and because you guys need encouragement, because I can see. I'm looking at your face. You need a little encouragement. So the second half of the book is the encouragement, and what he does, all he did, he just went to Eastern Europe and some in Canada, some in the States. He interviewed Christians who grew up, who lived through, who thrived under communist oppression in Eastern Europe and Russia. And he just tells their stories. And, and they had their secret meetings and they had memorized their Bible so that when they were thrown into prison, as many of them anticipated, they couldn't take the Bible out of their head because they'd put it someplace that couldn't physically be removed. But they're... The faith thrived, not numerically in the public sense, but the faith of these Christians thrived because they were ready for persecution. They were ready for the suffering that came when the Soviets came in. Uh, I'm going to forget the brother's name, but he started Voice of the Martyrs. Thank you, Wormbrand. There's a movie you can watch. It's graphic. It's, uh, I thought, unusually well-made for a Christian film especially. Uh, it's, it's compelling, or you can read his biography and Tortured for Christ. Uh, but you get a sense of what these guys did to prepare for the persecution that they assumed was going to be part of being a faithful witness for Christ. Are we prepared for troubles that have, in some cases, already crossed our borders and are beginning to occupy the place we call home at a personal level, just at a personal level? Are we prayed up each day, committing ourselves and others to the Lord? Are we praying? Do we have a vital prayer life with the Lord? And trusting ourselves and trusting others we know and care about to the Lord. Are we praying? Is that part of who we are and what we're doing? Are we strengthening our minds for action? Listen to 1 Peter 1.13. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. The best way to prepare our minds for action is, of course, to read our Bible, to meditate on God's Word, to make it our own, to think about it, to be formed by God's Word so that it can't be taken away. Are we walking in the good works God is calling us to? That's from Ephesians 2.10. In the will and power God provides. That's Philippians 2.13. Guys, this is the thing. A guy I used to see back in my fit sports days, he was a chiropractor, he was a super nice guy. He'd work on the athletes here in Topeka and at K-State for nothing. He'd just come and take care of you. He told me something I've never forgotten, and I think it's a great truism. He said, you're prepared to do what you're doing. You're prepared to do what you're doing. You know, if you're a basketball player and you're running up and down the court and you're playing basketball, you are not in shape to just run. Because running distance and playing basketball is not the same thing. To be prepared for one thing is good. So what is your life and my life characterized by? Because what we're doing is what we're prepared to do. So if trouble hits me in the face tomorrow, what is my life already characterized by? Because that's the resource, that's the provision I'm bringing to bear in whatever that trouble looks like. What am I doing? That's what I'm in shape to do. That's what I'm prepared to do. 
On the corporate level, are we serving Christ together as the body of Christ, as the church gathered? Philippians 1.13, remember Paul spent some time in Philippi, didn't he? And you remember where he spent it? In jail. And he wrote to them, Are we firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith? Guys, when persecution, when trouble by way of persecution comes, some of us are just going to flee. And others of us are simply not going to be available for others who need help. But Paul says one of the ways that we're prepared to suffer corporately is by being together with one another now, with one spirit, with single common goals going forward. If you don't have that now, it's unlikely that you'll have it later when it's more important. If future COVID mandates forbid churches to meet, do we have a plan to continue fellowshipping? And by the way, this is as the church has done throughout the last two millennia. You know, the early church met in the catacombs. Churches today in China meet in homes, sometimes hidden in Korea, the same thing. And they thrive. And we could do the same. Let's say here at this juncture, are you in a small group? Are you in any group of Christians smaller than this where people know you and you know them, where they pray for you, where you challenge them, where they challenge you? If government regulations limit Christians proclaiming the message of the gospel, this is already the case in Canada, by the way. You know, Canada has similar liberties in, in, in their, their framework, their country's framework, but, you know, it's illegal to talk about some things in Canada, even as pastors, to suggest that some lifestyles are not okay with God. It's illegal. It's against the law in Canada. If government regs limit our ability to proclaim the message of the gospel and the truth of Scripture, are we prepared to proclaim the gospel and the truth of Scripture anyway and suffer as needs be for doing so? Have we steeled our mind for that kind of action? Uh, John MacArthur's church, in defiance of Los Angeles County, met throughout COVID restrictions. He was interviewed at one point, and he said, because it's the threat, he's under threat, the board's under threat, the church is under threat. Uh, he said, if I go to jail, I'll assume that God has a new ministry for me, a prison ministry. He, he had looked down the road, and he had said, I'm good with that. If that's what comes, I'm ready for that. Are we? 1 Peter 3.14 says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, this isn't about being fearful, guys, because Christians don't need to be afraid of any of this stuff. You will be blessed, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Says Peter, who gone through persecution and imprisonment and ends his life, as we're told, as we read, upside down on a cross. Peter still says, you don't need to be afraid. That should be our attitude as well. The last is prepared for dying. Guys, you know, you, when we share the gospel, when we think about the gospel, you know, ultimately we're thinking not about time and life now, though that's important. We're ultimately thinking about eternity. And there is no trouble, no trouble, no trouble possible on earth that can compare with the trouble that faces us in eternity if we die without Christ. No trouble on earth can remotely compare with the trouble that would be ours. Uh, Robert Herrick was a 17th century English poet. He wrote a, a number of poems, but he's most familiar to most of us for a phrase in one of his poems called To the Virgins to Make Much of Time. That poem opened this way, Gather ye rosebuds while ye may, Old time is still a-flying, And this same flower that smiles today, Tomorrow will be dying. Now, he's not just talking about flowers. He's actually talking about youth and our humanity. It, you know, our humanity, like a flower, it blooms, it opens up, it enjoys life for a moment, and then it dies. And it all happens pretty quickly. Seems like a long time. It's not. It's over. That poem was then quoted in the 1989 movie Dead Poet Society when the teacher, John Keating, played by Robin Williams, is trying to impress his students with the call to seize each day they've been given because you don't know how many days you've got. The film, in the film, he says this, Seize the day, gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Why does the writer use these lines? Because we are food for worms, lads. Because, believe it or not, each and every day, one of us in this room is one day going to stop breathing, turn cold, and die. 
Gather your rosebuds while you may, because tomorrow you die. Unless Jesus calls us first, I'm good with that. Today, tomorrow, in the rapture of the church, unless that happens, if time goes on, keeps going on, all of us, just like that, we're going to breathe our last, turn cold, and die. And God willing, friends and family will plant our body in the earth. You remember, from dust you came and to dust you return. From the earth you came and to the earth you return. And our spirit returns, uh, Ecclesiastes 12, 7 says, to God who gave it. That will be true for all of us. No matter what's going on, that's going to be true. Uh, When I was on the Topeka Fire Department, just to give one example, I could give you a bunch but I accompanied lots of people on the last day they, they were alive on earth. And sometimes I arrived after they had passed. Sometimes I arrived while they were passing. And one of the, probably to me, it's still, this was probably 30, 30, 35 years ago, but it's almost as if it was yesterday. We were called to a shooting on 15th Street, just north of Washburn University. And we arrived, and there was a policeman who was already there. He was the first on the scene, and he was absolutely frantic. And this is what had happened. A 19-year-old Washburn University student, a girl, had argued with her boyfriend. She turned away from him to walk up to the house in which she had a second-floor apartment when he shot her multiple times through the back. She made it into the building. She was lying at the bottom of the steps that would go up to her apartment. She's bleeding from the front and from the back. And this poor policeman, I'm sure he'd not been on the force very long, he is frantic and he just says, I can't stop the bleeding. And it's like, you're not going to. And I know as we're working on this lady, because we've got protocols and we have to do certain things. And so as I'm looking at her face, I know we're doing CPR. She's dying. And her spirit might be leaving right now. She's dying in front of me, and there's not a thing anyone's going to do to stop this from happening. And, of course, no one did. She died. She was pregnant. She had a baby that never saw the light of day. She didn't know that was her last day. I can't tell you how many people, I would always ask myself this, did they know today was their last day? You know, the people who died of medical emergencies and accidents or violence like this, not just a few of those either, did they know when they got up this morning, you're not going to see another day? Your life's over. And guys, none of us know. Death is coming. Death is coming down the road. Your life and mine or the rapture of the church. Again, we're good with that. But our life on earth is going to be over. And we don't necessarily know when that's going to occur. Now, maybe we have a lengthy life and we die breathing our last in the midst of our family or friends. And that would be great. We'd be good with that, right? That'd be like Abraham. He lived, you know, to a ripe old age. He drew up his knees in bed. And he died. That, that'd be good. But there's no promise of that for any of us. When is death coming? How will it come? We don't know. Don't know. Are we ready for death? Live each day like it's your last because one day it will be. I want to look at two things. I'm winding down here. I want to look at two things related to trouble and death. The first one is not related to the person, us, as the one dying. It's related to the people we leave behind. This, this has probably bigger, broader implications if you're an adult, if you're married, if you have kids, if you have responsibilities, if you're, if you're tied in. It's not without any application otherwise, but those would be the most significant. If we died today, what kinds of unnecessary trouble would we leave behind for those who survive us? What unnecessary trouble would we leave behind for others who survive us. Things like, relationally, did I leave untended elements of forgiveness, giving or asking forgiveness with someone, and now I'm gone and I can't do that, and they can't interact with me on that either? Would the memories others have of me be that aroma of Christ that we're called to, or maybe something less aromatic that would be better forgotten? What's the testimony I'm leaving behind with those who know me? Uh, If I have any responsibilities or any assets, have I left a will or a trust? Uh, I'm I'm struck by wealthy people who have no wills. And, you know, you'll read in the paper, so-and-so died. They have no will. And all this is going to go through the court. And there's going to be all this hassle because they made no provision. It didn't bother them. But it's had huge troubling impact on those they left behind. 
Do we have life insurance or other means of making sure our family has some appropriate provision in our absence? Some appropriate provision in our absence. Does an attorney, a family member, or a friend know what to do after our demise? Are we making prudent provision now to avoid unnecessary trouble for others later? And you can just ask yourself, I do this as a husband and a father and a grandfather now. If I died today, is Kathy just out of luck? You know, Mike's gone, and she's like, where's the checkbook? Where's the money? Where's the life insurance? Where? Where's anything, you know, would, would she have a clue? And, and she does, by the way. But would it just be a mess because I made no provision and others are picking up what I didn't make preparation for? That's one big thing. Unnecessary trouble for others. The much bigger issue related to trouble and death is the trouble of facing Christ with our sins still on ourselves. You know, when people die, we're going to see Christ one way or another. And we will either see him as Savior, loving Savior, or as our judge. If we see Christ as our Savior, he's going to say, I hope all kinds of things. You know, we'll see him face to face. That'll be a good day. We'll be without our sinful self. And we'll be welcomed you know, there's a phrase out of this synoptic gospel, be welcomed into those righteous eternal homes by others. And we'll be with the saints of the Old Testament and the church. You think of Revelation 4 and 5, we'll be worshiping the Lord together. You know, we'll be one of the hallelujah chorus voices. It'll be grand if Christ has already become our Savior. And you know, the thing on that is, if you think about most troubles in life, they're, they're costly in one form or another. If I buy a generator, that's an expense. That's, that's costly. Or, you know, if I put food aside or I hire an attorney to make a will or any of this stuff, that's costly. What does it cost us to have our sins forgiven, to know that when we die, there's no trouble ahead, that trouble's already been met in Christ, and all we have to look forward to is eternal joy and pleasure in Christ's presence. What do we need to do? It doesn't cost us anything, right? You know, what must I do to be saved? I love the Acts 16 passage where Paul is in jail in Philippi. You know, and God shakes the earth and the prison doors open. And the, the guy that's hired by the Romans to watch over those visitors sees the doors open. You remember what he's ready to do? He's going to kill himself because the Romans will kill him otherwise. Because under the Roman law, if your prisoners escaped, you forfeited your life. And Paul says to him, you know, hey, don't do it, we're here. Now, this guy's desperate, and he probably knows why Paul is in prison. He probably knows something about this prisoner and his friend. So what does he say in his desperation? It's simple, right? I love it because it's so simple. He says, what must I do to be saved? Simple question and a simple answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Don't start, Sean. <laughs> I'm sorry, brother. Believe on Christ, you'll be saved. You know, no condemnation, all fears allayed, nothing but glory ahead, and it costs you nothing because Christ bore the penalty due your sin. That's the deal. That alleviates the only significant trouble that you and I need to be aware of ultimately. That's the trouble. To face Christ as your judge, friends, is the most fearful, troubling thing that our minds can't even get to. Listen to this. If you face Christ as judge, this is from Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. And Hebrews is warning those people. They said, yeah, Jesus is okay with me for a while till trouble comes and, and maybe I'll, I'll find a better option to avoid trouble. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, Christ and the gospel... There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. If I say, Jesus, uh, no thanks. What's left? A fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. What's left if I reject Christ and his offer of eternal life? Fearful expectation of judgment, the fury of fire that consumes the adversaries. In verse 31, he says this, the writer says this, 
It is a fearful thing. And guys, you want to know synonyms for fearful? It is horrifying and it is terrifying to fall into the hands of the living God as your judge. There's no greater trouble imaginable on earth than facing Christ as your judge. Christ, who loved the world and gave himself for our sins, is the sternest and most exacting of judges. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Sorry, going just a little long. What happens when the earth time is over? You know, this earth doesn't last forever. This earth age is going to be over one day. I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, that's Jesus, from his presence. And you got to love the language. Listen to this. The earth and the sky fled away. What does that mean? Guys, there's no place to hide. Earth is gone. Sky is gone. It says later, uh, the sea gave up the dead. Death and Hades gave up the dead in them. All this means there's no place to hide. The only place any of these people can find themselves is at Christ's throne for judgment. We're told that they are the dead, and that's defining not only who they are, but what they are. They are without Christ, and they are without hope. It says they're judged by books, the books of their own deeds. They're judged, their name is not in the book of life. It says... Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Verse 10 in that same text says, the torments of the lake of fire go on forever and ever. In the Greek, I own and I own repeated means for eternity. The certainty of death and not knowing when our life will end should inspire us to attend to our relationship with God first and above all other things. So preparation for trouble coming down the road, for living, for persecution, and certainly for dying. Now, I hope you have a study sheet because in each of those key categories, there's just places for you to write things down. Now, if, you, if someone gives you a hit list, the response could be, there's so much to do, I'll do nothing. I, d I don't know what to do. I don't know where to start. And let me just encourage you, don't do nothing. Don't do nothing. Do something. You can at least do this. You can make a list. Ask yourself, you know, what kind of trouble should I make pr preparation for practically? Just make a list and then prioritize it. And don't try and do them all at once. Just do them one by one and just go down your list. And you can do that in each of these. The last one's the easiest. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Believe and be saved. The other ones require a little bit more thoughtfulness, but we can do these things one at a time. We can slowly work our way down and we can present to God a wisdom that's as least as good as the ants. Troubles are always coming over the horizon in this life. Are we making wise provision to avoid those troubles when we can? Some are avoidable. To suffer well in those areas of trouble that we cannot avoid or should not avoid. Well, rise with me. I want to close by reading together from Luke 6, verses 47 through 49. Worship team is going to come on up. And let's read that together. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who 